Hello, legends, and welcome to today's show. Catching Up With Cub is a podcast that ensures that you have the knowledge and the entertainment needed to kick ass in today's business world. As always, this show is brought to you by Cub, the club of United Business, Australia's number one members club, connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. Having the right network is the oldest, the most proven, and the best tactic for securing success of all time. But there's never been a way for all of us to connect. Now there is, and it's Cub, and that's why uh, Cub is the country's fastest growing members club for entrepreneurs and business leaders. Our guest today is Wes Lambert, CEO of Restaurants and Caterers Australia. Wes has been a long-standing Cub member, and his organization is the voice of our country's hospitality industry. The RCA represent over 45,000 of our favorite restaurants who employ over 450,000 of our country's citizens. Uh, the RCA, as I mentioned, is the voice for our country's hospitality industry, lobbying government for policies that are going to keep your favorite restaurants healthy, happy, and alive. It was a brilliant conversation, so enjoy the show. Hello, Wes, and welcome to the show, mate. How are you? I'm well, Daniel. How are you? I'm very good, and welcome to my welcome to my home. Excited to have you here and to get you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you, mate. I can imagine you are a tired and busy man at the moment. My phone starts ringing at about six thirty in the morning now, and it stops ringing at midnight after the last announcements by national cabinet. So it's it's wall to wall. Tell me, what's a typical day consisting for you at the moment? Uh, at six thirty in the morning, the journos start calling and asking me what's going to happen in the hospitality industry uh, throughout the day. I have multiple um, online teleconference video meetings with various premiers, uh, various ministers trying to figure out how to get the entire country through coronavirus crisis. And you, you are very much the voice for the hospitality industry in so, Australia. So as the lobbyist group, uh, we represent those 45,000 plus businesses and all of their interests in Canberra and in each of their parliaments. Uh, they don't typically have a voice collectively. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be able to speak to their local member. However, when it comes to uh, lobbying for them in Canberra and in their parliament house, it certainly requires their industry association. And how did you get into that position? How did you end up where you are today? Well, that's a long story. Yeah. You can tell it quickly if you want. I've got now, the 45-second well, How long have you been CEO for? Uh, almost a year. Wow. And, uh, uh, I'm a dual citizen, Australian and American. Mm -hmm. uh, so my hospitality career started more in the corporate side. Uh, I was an investment banker in restaurant capital. You were an investment banker, were you? Yeah. <sighs> so that's where I learned the uh, balance sheet P&L and cash flows yeah. of restaurants. Then I built the night, largest nightclub in the U.S., 10,000 square meters and three buildings on 1.4 acres of land. Jeez. So Which city was that in? Atlanta. Wow. So the hip hop capital. Yeah. So we had, so we had lots Mad of club. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> so my my mid twenties to early thirties were quite quite crazy. Oh, uh, in fact, Niles Barkley sang me crazy on my thirty first birthday. No way. Yeah, when the song <laughs> had just come out. Oh my uh, god. So I I went on tour with Motley Crue for three concerts. I have certainly I lived a rock star life for yeah. a while. Yeah. Uh, sold out of that to our biggest competitor. Moved to Thailand for a year. Owned a pub. Uh, and then came to a Australia. Pub, a pub in Thailand? I did. I owned a pub in Phuket. Uh, <laughs> then moved to Australia uh, and ran into a couple of guys who had a small restaurant group and wanted to grow. Mm -hmm. Put my investment banker hat back on, 
restructured the company into unlisted public, took on 100 investors, prospectus, employee prospectus, and we ran Kingsley's Chop House. And I partnered with Jamie Oliver and brought Jamie's Italian to Australia. And we sold out in 2000. We sold out in 2013 to Keystone Group. Yes. At 12 times what we invested. And I moved back to the States and formed another company. And uh, oh, then you moved back to the States. I after did. That. And uh, um, helped form a company in manufacturing and with some IT components and sold out of that uh, last year and came back to Australia just for this job. Just for this job. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a journey. So you've really experienced all elements of the hospitality you've been in the nightclubs you've done the bar you've done the restaurants you've done the i guess the financial side and the back end and most people don't know i was a combat medic before all of that and so i have dealt with crisis like this and so i know how to triage things and deal with stressful situations and so what's your opinion on what should be happening at the moment how can we best well you know what what is your opinion in general of what's happening that's a big question. Um, you know, we say that we follow the government's response. Mm-hmm. So when the government passes rules and laws, we have to go with those uh, because the government is in control right now. It's in charge of the situation. Uh, there's lots. There's two sides to every story. There's you know, two sides of a coin. There are people that say we should lock down all the way. There are people that say that it doesn't necessarily work and let's go small stages at a time. It doesn't matter what I think. We're going with what the government says as far as advocating to our uh, members and to the industry in total. And ultimately, Australia wouldn't necessarily be able to handle an ultimate shock of every business closing at midnight tonight or Mm -hmm. midnight tomorrow. Um, We feel like the government's doing a staged slowdown to eventually having as many people as possible work from home. But we continue to advocate that food delivery and food takeaway stays a part of essential because 40% of meals are eaten out of home in Australia already. The grocery stores just can't handle a 40% increase. The shelves are already bare in most markets. Yeah, I still can't get my toilet paper. I can't have to get it from Cap. <laughs> <laughs> but so when they tell us that uh, don't, don't stock up on your food, don't stock up on your food, the f- there's enough food, the supermarkets are going to be full, is that true or is it true to an extent? I'm not in the grocery industry. They do have the, they do have the supply. Mm-hmm. They do have the volume of food for the grocery stores for 60% of meals, which yes. is what typically was eaten uh, at home. Um, it's just more the logistics of getting it there. Uh, so recently the government has uh, allowed uh, grocery stores to be open 24 hours and pharmacies to be open 24 oh, hours. Oh, so they are open 24 hours? Which will, they're allowed to be, mm-hmm. which will allow the stocking to happen a little bit more efficiently, mm-hmm. but also shopping outside of a squished amount of hours, which means that when something does get on the shelves, a very small group of people take it all at one time. And so it, it, you, it, the impression is given that the shelves are empty. And so you were mentioning that um, if we move to the next stage of lockdown, that means that the delivery the restaurants fully close. It's not just you can't get delivery anymore. I would basically starve to death. No. So stage three, uh, as far as we understand, doesn't include um, delivery. Mm-hmm. It may uh, doesn't include delivery. Doesn't include, so wait, I can still get it delivered. So you should be able to. It's stage so four that I have so to be careful. We've lobbied the government very strongly that delivery needs to stay there um, in order to get food to people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that can't leave. And it's very important that you have touch points. You know, the restaurant cooking it, which is very clean, 
handed to a driver outside, straight to your house, left at your front door, that's very, very few touch points. You have more touch points in a grocery store than you would having food. How can we be sure? Because I've, I've done this. I've ordered my delivery and I've got the food and I've looked at it and been like, ooh. <laughs> How can we be sure that the restaurant's taking the right precautions? Restaurants obviously are um, taking the right precautions at the moment. And what are they doing differently to ensure that food is, I mean, that the, the making of the food is done in the most... Um, Corona-free way. Imagine if a restaurant ended up being the epicenter of a corona outbreak. So restaurants are actually on the front lines of ensuring that things are super clean. Mm. So they're wiping down all the time. They're wearing gloves. They're In some cases, they're wearing masks when they're cooking the food Mm -hmm. because they understand that it's food service. And so they know, based on their food handler and their food safety supervisor training, that in these crisis times that it's most important that things are very clean. And nowadays, food is sealed in the bag. So you'll, you will, there'll be a sticker on the top that seals the food. Yeah, I think that sticker is crucial because then the next, um, the next question is the, the Deliveroo. Are the restaurants or is the association or the government working with Deliveroo to ensure that their drivers or Uber Eats or whoever the delivery is to ensure that the drivers are also taking the right precautions? So there's no government um, mandate yet. Um, and it's something that we were looking into really for since delivery came to Australia. Uh, restaurants have to abide by certain uh, health department and council rules uh, from the federal government down to a local council. And the delivery drivers did not normally have to follow a, uh, have a food handler or a food safety certificate, uh, but things change. And obviously this is a, is a crisis. Uh, getting the food handler certificate is not too difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we certainly advocate that if it is possible um, to get one, and then at least you have the the, uh, knowledge that that particular driver has had that that training to understand about food food handling. And what do you think restaurants can be doing? That's like this time is a time where a lot of businesses are having to change, divert, innovate, Many businesses have can't even sell anymore, right? Money is not moving. There's a lot of businesses where money is just not moving, and there we've seen a lot. A lot of our members even they've they started doing things. Uh, they've they've started pushing their brand, or they've started connecting more with or serving their cut clients more. Um, have restaurants started innovating? And do you think what have they been doing? Well, first off, they're going from dine-in to delivery and takeaway, which was unheard of. Uh, Some restaurants are doing curbside. So they're literally uh, getting, if you call in and you make your order, they're taking your tag number, they're taking your credit card over the phone or or tap and go, and literally you pay in advance, your tag number is lodged, you pull up, you pop your trunk, they put your food in, shut it, and you drive away. So that's a very innovative solution to zero touch points besides the top of the bag. some restaurants are turning into mini grocery stores. So restaurants have the ability to get produce, fresh produce, uh, packaged food, and- That's a brilliant idea. And sundries like toilet paper. So we had a member who, their patrons can't use his bathroom, and he got a delivery of a case of toilet paper, like a pallet case. So 178 rolls. He's selling 178 rolls of toilet paper. And he's allowed to. And he's allowed to, because he's a- right. Why wouldn't he be? He's a retail store. So even though there's a- Businesses have a use. Starbucks sells hot coffee. 
hot and cold food and coffee by the bag. It's you can sell things, you can be innovative. Um, you know, there are some food labeling guidelines, but those food ga- labeling guidelines can be followed and you can literally vacuum pack pre-cooked meals with a label and you can sell that to a customer in a restaurant that was normally bums on seat. Your restaurant, your local restaurant, your favorite restaurant, you trust that restaurant. You've been eating there for years. You know the people very well. You know the chef. It would almost be really cool if the restaurants could become your new kitchen. For example, here in Potts Point where we are now, there's tons of buildings and uh, apartment buildings and things like that around the place. There's a, it's a high-dense high living population or whatever it's called. And imagine if every night I actually don't know what to eat. I'm at the moment living off toasted sandwiches. Imagine if people – all the people in this building, the other buildings could go down to the restaurant, have their, their night meal, grab their, grab their dinner on the way home or grab the dinner you know, at a certain time and come up and eat that. That could be really cool and that could be something that the restaurants could do. They're like your local kitchen for your house. Absolutely. So we're advocating that uh, people uh, speak with their local restaurants on the phone and pre-organize their meals to be ready for them when they when I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to call the restaurant downstairs and start doing that because I, I, I dislike going to Woolworths at the moment. I would much prefer walking to a nice, clean restaurant, grab my beautiful food, which, um, which should be at a fair price point and it should be a, a, just a nice everyday meal to take home. To Absolutely. Take they home. can do a week at a time. So restaurants are already innovating and, and coming up with ways to provide meals for people who need all of their meals provided to them in a week, not just yes. you know, a couple of dinners in a week. I love that idea. It, it, you know, there's companies like Food for Fitness that have been delivering meals for a long time mm. uh, and they have a very good pipeline and they're, and they're very good at it. However, you go from a situation where only a small percentage of the population was getting those meals delivered to very soon 100% of the population that may need meals delivered and or going to the shops for a portion of their meals. So especially in Potts Point, where you have a high population density of people mm. who normally would have eaten out almost every meal. I ate out almost every meal, mm. so I understand exactly what you're talking about. Uh, we need a way to be able to grab and go without actually interacting too many touch points with the restaurant. And those hospitality companies, uh, you know, the Eat Fit Foods and the, you know, the meal delivery, HelloFresh, Jen- Hello Jenny Craig or whatever, they, do, they drop off the meal. Are they doing better now? Well, that's a good question. Um, I believe HelloFresh went into administration mm-hmm. uh, because you know, it's before the crisis or uh, during the crisis. Oh, okay. So certain businesses uh, are, will make it and won't make it. Um, however, anything any business that's doing delivery and takeaway, bringing meals to individuals, bringing meals to keep people able to stay in their homes on as much lockdown as possible will benefit the entire population because it's less people out touching other people. Yeah. You know what else they could do? The chefs could be doing uh, videos and YouTube videos for um, just cooking. You know, this is one of my favorite recipes. So people can, if they are cooking at home, which obviously is happening a lot more now, they're at least they're building the brand of the restaurant. Oh, that's my favorite restaurant. I'm learning something from, Obviously, it's one of my favorite chefs because I eat there all the time and, and now I'm being able to have that. And so when the in- economy comes back, they've got an even deeper relationship with that, with that restaurant, that chef. Bring you into my kitchen. So chefs, innovative chefs and innovative businesses should be bringing the customers into their kitchen through podcasts, through live streams. While they're making that food, 
so that you get to experience it. Yes. So yes, maybe I'm sitting at home and I'm eating the meal that I just got from my favorite restaurant and I'm watching the podcast or I'm watching the live stream of them cooking the meal for the next person mm-hmm. so that I can at least feel like I'm experiencing it. We've heard it from- And have confidence some, in the process of it. Absolutely. We've heard from some uh, outside of our industry, but from some nightclubs and some bars that are literally having pre-mixed bottled cocktails delivered and then allowing you to go on to their live stream and listen to the music and watch them make the cocktails that they're putting into the bottles to have delivered because the four of states have a, are now allow for alcohol to be delivered now now so in sydney you can have alcohol so in sydney you can order from your favorite restaurant and they can give you a bottle of wine a six pack of beer cider or pre-mixed spirits one of my favorite restaurants franca the french brasserie uh, they actually do that. They're allowing people to buy from the wine cellar now. So Absolutely. I think that's a f- fantastic idea. It's just another another innovation that a lot of restaurants could 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 potentially do. So we lobbied the premiers. We've lobbied the premiers of all the states and territories. Mm-hmm. Four have agreed, uh, which is great for restaurants, cafes, and coffee shops who have alcohol, mm-hmm. who have licenses. Because now one of the things that was always a big complaint about delivery was the quality of the meal financially. Meaning if you go into a restaurant and you sit down, bums on seats, you have water, you have an entree, you have a main, you might have dessert, you certainly have wine, you might have a cocktail or beer, and, and, and even something after dinner. When you had delivery before, you might not be able to get those things and you'd have to go to the bottle shop or you'd have to plan for a whole meal that way. Now they bring it directly to you. You get the whole experience in one place. Uh, you know, we'll see if those uh, laws stick. Uh, but since the government governs the people, if the people want something to stay, it's going to stay. Mm. The question is how long will it be relevant for as well? So we need it to happen because it will allow the restaurants to survive. right? But hopefully this goes away pretty quick. Oh, we want the coronavirus to go away yeah. as fast as possible. But It would also know, be cool to have that stay after. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, so what we're seeing is a lot of uh, – Australia is a highly regulated country. It's one of the – most highly regulated in Australia. Tell me about it. And it's one of the hardest for businesses to survive uh, or to thrive in, in, in without the coronavirus. However, with the changes that are being made in response to the crisis, uh, it's like a war. During wartime, at the beginning of World War II, there was no such thing as a jet engine. Mm. Just six years later, we had jets. So think about the speed of creation of things. So during crises like this, when minds all have to come together to solve problems, you get massive amounts of change very quickly. And so we expect that a lot of the changes that happen, they may stay on the other side if they make sense. They will. And, and that's, that's, that's the viewpoint of, a, of an entrepreneur, right? Of a business owner, of a, of a leader. Hey, there's something bad happening, but what's what good is going to come out of this? What good can come out of this? But we need to protect everybody while it's also happening. Is, is, and that's what you're doing. You're protecting the hospitality industry. You're ensuring that, that um, all Australians can still go down and enjoy their favourite restaurant, have a nice drink, ha- have, have something to eat now and, uh, of course, when, when the world returns to us. Absolutely. And we're also working with you know, both the state and federal government on things like renovations and uh, loan deferrals and anything to save the business because no one wants to come out on the other side of this 
at six months in one day or three months in one day, and Australia's lost half of its businesses mm. because that means that unemployment will be 15% and you'll have a very different landscape on the other side. Mm. So it's really about let's make rules and laws and be sensible about it while we're still trying to flatten the curve but not just throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and the way we should be thinking about it is every business is uh, made up of all of the people that are in that business. Every business is a family made up of all the families rely on that business to operate. We can't let them die. We can't let the businesses die because when the business is dead, there's no jobs now and in the future, right? We need to keep the businesses there alive. They might be smaller. The flame might have come down. There might just be an ember. But when uh, the, when the uh, rains finish, that, that ember can grow again and it can create more positivity. It becomes more powerful. So we need to keep them there. Is, is crucial and that's hospitality but that's all business as well so i made this case to the premier of south australia just today mm -hmm. uh, i said businesses need to figure out is it better to have a small loss every week or every month until this is over and eat that small loss and seek further government assistance or to close and have all that fixed cost just piling up Right? No one wants to come out of this in three to six months and owe six months of rent or six months of equipment finance or six months of loans because you'll never make that up. Mm. If people think that the government is going to pay all of their bills throughout this entire crisis, they're, they're, they are sorely mistaken. The government wants to cover the loss. The government wants to cover what you can't cover to be break-even. So it's better for you to actually be at a slight loss and seek money from the government to cover that slight loss than it is to expect that they're going to pay your big rent bill and your big loan bill and your big equipment finance bill on the other side. Yes, the government is not there just to, to do it all for you. you, you they're there to help, to make it easier. And I think they're actually doing a pretty good job with these policies that they've been bringing out. I mean, what are your thoughts? So the federal stimulus is almost 100% for businesses that stay open. The Prime Minister said that mm -hmm. and he's repeated it and the Treasurer has said that. By this stay open, what do you mean? They, they don't close. They, they, they run, don't close. They continue to trade. Now, some of it may be work from home, but it's still continuing to trade. The federal stimulus is continue to trade. Mm -hmm. Some of the state stimuluses are mixed. They're continue to trade in some ways and in other ways they're, uh, if you close down, if you're forced to close down, then we'll have some benefit that you can reach out for and, and seek through that closure period. To help you start again or to help you survive the closure? To, to help you survive the closure. Okay. It really will be up to you if you can start again. So about 75% of the stimulus is for businesses to stay open. Mm. So, Which is the key. Which is the key. About. Keep as many people employed as possible, even if some of them are stood down. If the business fails, then those stood down employees are out of a job. Mm. 100%. And, and while a business is operating, there's still someone there. <laughs> someone look, still needs, needs look, to look, be working. Look, if you cover 80% of your costs and you have a 20% loss, it's better than having 100% costs not being covered. Because insolvent trading, while it might be removed right now, in six months and one day, when it's no longer removed and you have six months of bills that you don't have a source to cover – then you're insolvent. It's going to catch you. It's you're going insolvent. to catch up to you. Correct. Mm. But if you have 20% loss each month, 
that you've sought ways to get money from the state or federal government to cover most of that loss or some part of it, you're a lot better off on the other side. So moral of the story, keep businesses alive is the goal. Keep businesses at break even. And as a, and as a business owner, keep going. Absolutely. Keep going. Don't Innovate. give up. Innovate. Keep, and just the hospitality, see, I think there's something so special about hospitality. It's because it's almost, you're almost selling community, family, connection. There's something very deep. It, I mean, you see it with the, you know, your Italian grandmothers. and they, <laughs> nice. I know my grandmothers as well, one of being Italian, they, they, it was the same concept. They give you, they were, they were giving you food. It was like giving you love. It was like, it's, it, there's something very personal about the hospitality industry so hospitality is the root word is hospitable right? hospitable there which, you go. which uh, it's hospital yeah hospitality it's being hospitable it's caring for people yes. right you go to a hospital to be cared for you go to a hospitality business because they're caring for you you think about all the yes. things that happen in a restaurant or a small bar or in a cafe right business interactions but also your first date is always in a restaurant, mm. right? People ask people to marry them in a restaurant, right? You go on your anniversaries in a restaurant. You bring your friends and family together in a restaurant, Yes, right? Everything happens in a hospitality business. So you're dead on. You are exactly right. It's, it's almost the extension to your home, to your safe place. It's like a more special version because you do all the – you do all in your house, right? You do all your regular meaningful things, which obviously the most important to you, right? But for the more special things, you want to get out of the house, but you still want to. It's a place of meaning. It's a place of safety, security. It's a place of of family. Absolutely, and many regular customers, and I'm sure that you are one of them in the restaurants you go to. They build relationships with those. I'm number one customer in every restaurant. They build a relationship with the owners, with the managers, with the staff. And, you know, the restaurants that, that I go to, and I don't have favorites because I represent them all. But um, Liar. <laughs> Liar. But when, but when I go to certain restaurants and they know me and, and they know what I like and what, you know, what foods that I prefer and what wines that I prefer, it makes the, the experience much better and you build that up by continuing to go to those businesses and patronizing those businesses. And you're, they're usually a few kilometers from your house. You know, your favorite restaurant that yep. they know you is not going to be in another state. Yes. Right. And it's not going to be in, in three or four suburbs over. It's going to be very close to where you live. And so it's the community. And so we need to be looking out for the community around us and understand that those businesses, they're the reason why your property has the value that it has. Mm. Right. If every single restaurant around you closes, your property won't be worth as much, yeah. right? Pot, Pots Point sucks right now. It's, <laughs> There's nothing downstairs. <laughs> but, but ultimately, we're, we're all in this community together. The businesses that are at the bottom of your building, the businesses that are on the corner of your street, the viability of those businesses is why you live there. It's why you move there. Yeah. It's why you want to be in yes. this high rise, right? So yes. they have to be protected as best as possible. And the advice that I'm giving them is trade through this if you can. Because you'll be better off on the other side. Yes, hundred percent. It's 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 almost one of the first industries. You know what I mean? It's it's the most basic of industries. It's like we have food. Here's our food. We have. Let's come together. It's like when the you know your your cavemen would have been dancing around the bonfire. <laughs> it's the 
same thing. Well, the, la- the Last Supper would have had to been in a restaurant. There you are. Right. So you, you think about famous pictures of people that are sitting in cafes or or having a meal. They would have been in a restaurant or a pub or they would have been some Something in some gathering place they would have been in in an alehouse they would have been in a, in a typical yes. hotel with rooms upstairs and dining and drinking downstairs i wish they told us before or gave us a little bit more time notice before they closed the the restaurants to eat at because i would have had my last supper at my favorite ones <laughs> well you can still order from there hopefully I, uh, hopefully they didn't close down no no i hope not but a restaurant gives you power as well it represents that like for example thinking about everything I do. I do business deals, dates, um, family celebrations. They're all at the same three restaurants. There's three restaurants. I'll rotate. That way. 90% is that one restaurant. <laughs> but You can give them a shameless plug but the reason, But the real uh, Manta. I love Manta in That If you want to find me, if anyone ever wants to kill me, you can find <laughs> me on Friday afternoon or Saturday night at Manta. Now you realize I used to own Kingsley's on the works. So. Oh, that was my dad's favorite restaurant. Oh, there you go. When my dad was was working, he was uh, he was famous at Kingsley's. Apparently, he was he was um, I know probably this. the number one customer. I know that. I, I was supposed to go there, but I had a dr- bit to drink on my way. I got lost. I ended up at Manta, and I you know it's I Man- just Manta's stuck, a great I restaurant. There. Yeah, it gives you power because you walk in, you you know where everything is, you know where the bathroom is, you, you the, the the team of the restaurant come up to you, shake your hand, say, hello, Daniel, how are you? Hello, Mr. Hakim, or whatever they would say. The manager will come say hello, and suddenly you're in this, you've got this feeling of... Validation. Yes, I feel I belong here. And I think that is the core of a restaurant. You make someone belong, and it's almost the core of, of a lot of business, right? If you can make, if your customer feels a sense of belonging, like a member at Cub, I'm part of Cub because I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business owner. I, these are my people. Here they are. I belong here. Everyone's happy to speak to me, wants to speak to me. I feel I can talk to them. We understand each other. I belong. It's almost deeper than just an exchange of a service. So if you go into a restaurant, I'm not just buying your food. It's deeper than that. I feel like I belong here. You're excited to see me. It's like when you see your grandmother, she hasn't, she, she hasn't seen you in two weeks. You see, she's so excited to see you. Feel, oh, my God, this lady loves me. You know, you're buying their dreams. Yeah. So think about a restaurateur when they were sitting in their house and they were saying um, they were dreaming up Manta, right? They were dreaming it up and they were dreaming up a menu and they were dreaming up a fit out. And they were saying, this is what we want it to be. And this is the experience we want people to have. Well, you're experiencing someone else's dream. And they've continued that at that particular restaurant for a long time. And there's many restaurants where every single day you think about the chef who runs that restaurant, you think about the owner who runs that restaurant, the managers, they wake up every single day saying, how can I provide a better experience today for all of my customers? Yeah. Can I ask you something? Why? So we have some of the best food in the world in this country. We've got the most amazing people in this country. But why is it that at 10 p.m. on a Friday or a Saturday night, restaurants are – they're slowing down or you go to a place where you think there would be cafes everywhere happening, things happening. In Australia, this is actually, sorry, in Sydney, there's not really. So, Danny, how old are you? I'm 28. Okay. So you would have been in Potts Point or near before the lockout laws came into effect. Yes. Okay. So think about every 17-year, 363-day-year-old who turned 18 the day that the lockouts were in effect. So what happened was you have five years of people who could never come to the entertainment areas. 
who you know, they were cut off from really having a good time when normally you would have gone out. And so what happened is in that five-year time frame, restaurants that used to get pumping at 10 or 11 o'clock because they could There was the younger, the younger people came in at the time. They were ready to go. Listen, when I, when I was that age, I would come home from work on a Friday or, you know, sometimes on a Saturday I'd do other things during the day. I would take a nap and I'd wake up at seven or eight and start to get ready. And I'd go to supper at nine or 10 (laughs) o'clock. Right. And then I would, then I would think about where am I going out? And I would stay out till four or five in the morning. So really it was like the, the evening started on a Friday and Saturday night. From nine o'clock. Yeah. Well, all of that's changed in Sydney because of the lockout laws, which have been repealed thanks to our lobby. Yes, but um, not in this area. They've been but repealed. not in the King's yeah. Cross area. And so, which is fair enough because they should really clean up King's Cross. I mean, it's still a dump. Like, fix it. Like, it's just it could be done. They could they could they could create a beautiful area around here. They could extend this side of Potts Point and get it through and make it really amazing. But well, you need, a, you need a big developer and a big developer. We oh, need. I know a lot of them. I'm going to give them all a call and say, <laughs> well, hey, motherfuckers, let's it, get this sorted. You, you have a lot of individual owners of all of the strata that are around King's Cross. So it becomes Is that what's very, preventing the change or what's preventing the oh, change? It's, you know, when you had the lockout laws put in, mm-hmm. that, that's a big change, right? So that meant that the area uh, wasn't as desirable. Also, traditionally, King's Cross. Well, actually, Cross, the values of the properties went up. Oh, uh, well, the value, well, of course, the residential side. Yeah. But everything, but in terms of from a developer's point of view, turning it into mixed use, it King's Cross is King's Cross. You know, all the way back to World War II, when the Americans you know, were parked out at the Navy base very close to here, it's been King's Cross. Mm. It is King's Cross, right? So it, it will take you know, a long time before it changes to be more gentrified. Uh, maybe this crisis will lead to the gentrification of King's Cross mm. uh, as businesses close and those leases fall over, uh, maybe some of the landlords will realize that, hey, we need to, to change this. There has been a lot of development. There, there are a lot of nicer businesses and nicer buildings than there were you know, 20 yeah. years ago. Yes. Um, you know, it, uh, to use your words, it's still dumpy. It's not a dump, but it, it could move to a more- Oh, it could definitely to be move, move a thriving inner city, New York living style. I mean, look at where the cub is. You're one street over mm. from Bayswater mm. and Bayswater is starting to change. I know there's a great new restaurant that's on the backside Which uh, one's right that? next to the Cub. That's if, if you go in the roundabout and you start walking towards uh, Bayswater, yes. there's a very cool little restaurant that's opened up there. Mexican place. That's yeah, right there on the corner. Yeah, Laura, there's Laura shaking her head. She knows it's a cool restaurant. It's great. And yeah. so that's the kind of things that they need to happen and they need to happen progressively uh, and – you know, it, certainly this area will change. Uh, and the rest, the Sydney in general. And, right? and how would you compare Sydney and Melbourne? Like, because Melbourne is, Melbourne's a whole, on a Tuesday night in Melbourne, you go to one of those lanes and you, it feels like you're in Europe. I actually, we went on a team dinner and Alice from Cub Sydney was with us. And you were walking down the lady in Melbourne and, you know, the guy's like, oh, come there, sit at this restaurant. What do you look like? I throw in a drink for you. I do this. And I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. I actually want, I said, we sat at that restaurant because I was like, I love, they, they were trying to sell us to come into the restaurant. You got, hawk, like, you got hawked in. You no, know, I didn't get hawked in. I just loved it so much. I was like, <laughs> shit, I'm going <laughs> to eat at your restaurant, man. So Melbourne has a different dining culture than Sydney. Mm. Um, Melbourne's dining culture is laneway dining. And there's lots of iconic restaurants very close to each other in a very small and hidden area. And tucked away, Of course. Yeah. Yeah, look, look at you know, Mavita. Or Chin Chin, or, mm. or really any of the restaurants that are that are off Flinders Lane, 
if you didn't know they were there, you wouldn't know they were there. Yes. You know, Ezard, it's a little bit down. And you, you yes. just have so many businesses that are that are in strange places, but cool places. They're very, it's, it's like trendy, the town is trendy. One, it's like Melbourne is one big speakeasy, right? Mm. It feels like that. And it's also, um, it didn't have lockout laws. So, you know, five years ago when you had some problems, which uh, led to the lockout laws in New South Wales, um, I said at the hearing to have the lockout laws removed that New South Wales took a sledgehammer to the problem and broke everything. And now they're trying to put the pieces back together. But in Melbourne, they took a scalpel to the problem and they cut out the businesses that were the troublemakers and they left the body so, whole. So what did they do? They, what did they do in Melbourne? So the businesses that were repeat offenders, the businesses that were um, that were creating the problem, they restricted them, restricted them, restricted them. And in some cases, they took the licenses away. Oh, that, that's much smarter. And why did City not follow that? You, you know, it's uh, the, the leaders at the time, I won't say any names, yes. um, they thought the sledgehammer approach was better. Okay. Yeah, I would have gone the sledgehammer too, even though it would have been the wrong decision. Just sound, <laughs> sounds more like my approach to things. But, but, um, Australia, I mean, you go around the world, and hospitality is a key industry. So in America, ever. in America, hospitality is number two behind the government. No, it is a nine hundred billion dollar industry because in Australia, many decades ago, uh, the system was put in place so that industries were classed by the award that they paid, so by the rate of pay they paid their employees. That's the Australian system. That's the Australian system. Yes. And so, for example, um, McDonald's is pays a different award than a restaurant, pays the fast food award. Or certain... Oh, they've got different uh, yeah, awards. Yeah, so they have different awards. So we, so we don't represent fast food because they pay a different award. Mm -hmm. So... What is the fast food award, do you know? How wage? much is it? Yeah. Oh, I don't know the exact dollar, but it's but they're lower, all lower than the restaurant. Uh, slightly, but they're all very. In general, there's 122 modern awards. So you have, you know, hotels. So the the hotels that you walk into that have gaming and have food and beverage and that are, are hotels, and they're governed by a different industry association and a hospitality award. In America, if you sell food and grog, you are a restaurant. It doesn't matter if you're a casino. It doesn't matter if you have gaming. It doesn't matter if you're a nightclub, a bar. It doesn't matter. It's one industry. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is uh, represented by the National Restaurant Association, which is only number two in lobby to the NRA, the National Rifle Association. Yeah, the guns come first. Yeah, that's the right. <laughs> but then the food. But, um, but being one, right, not splitting the, for example, classifying everyone as a restaurant. Yep. That does make the industry stronger. You got Absolutely. more pool now. You got more companies, more money, more business. Now it's good for businesses. It's not so good for the employees. In America, the minimum wage in restaurants, uh, in a full service restaurant, is two fifty five an hour yes. plus tips. Now in the U.S., tips are usually about fifteen percent on average in full service restaurants. Now Australia has tips. Don't let anyone anyone tell you that Australians don't tip. The percentage is just less. Uh, it ranges between 5 and 8% in Australia. But I almost like the American system. I obviously don't like the wages being that low, but I do like the tipping system because it does allow for someone who wants to do a really good job, provide a really good service, the ability to earn more, that, which is good for the restaurant. And they turn tables faster. Yes. So, for example, restaurants in America will typically turn tables uh, two to two and a half times at lunch and uh, – three times at dinner. And the reason why they do that is because they make more tips to yeah, do that. Three now, people paying them. Now, the, the diner doesn't know that they're being dined in and out. 
they don't know that the process is is slated for an hour or an hour and 15 minutes but the experience that they're given is is very much to drive the tip so the service level the service quality sometimes can be better in America in certain restaurants and in the most higher end restaurants because of that tip um which is you know it's just a different model now there are some hospitality professionals in America that make a hundred thousand dollars a year in tips. Jeez. That that is very very common, especially in the big markets like New York, Miami, L.A., Chicago, mm. Dallas, uh, Houston, where you'll see um, people making hundreds and hundreds of dollars per shift in tips. Uh, in my nightclub, it would be a slow week if my uh, bartenders didn't make five hundred dollars a night in tips. Wow. Well, and but so why is that not better? Why don't we have that here? Oh, it's just Australia is has Different. is a has a safety net. Mm-hmm. So the current system is a safety net, so that wages are enough for an Australian to live and to have a great life in Australia. Um, you know, there are arguments around wages, and I won't get into that. However, because wages are higher, there is a propensity for society not to top it up with a tip. Yes, and I agree with that because you're you're already thinking, oh, they're getting paid uh, quite a substantial amount. Do you, in America, it's kind of expected to tip. Everyone right? knows in America that yeah. servers are on two fifty five an hour. Yeah, so you tip. So you tip, and if they're great, you really tip. You really tip. But so, here, you haven't got that because you're like you, you're not as excited. You know? No, the the good servers here, you know, they won't go past the tip screen, embarrassed, mm. right? The good servers here. Um, I recently went to meet a wine co, and the server was v- very up front about handing us the bill on the tip page. And we tipped because he gave us phenomenal service. Mm. You know, we were at the table for almost three hours. Mm. So, you know, the, the idea is, of course, it's okay to give a gratuity if you want to. It's just not expected in Australia. And what's a healthy for Australia? What's a, a good tip percentage? Well, that's individual. I mean, the average is between five and eight. Okay. Um, you know, if you go, yeah, into, I'd say that's go, fair, go right? into your average coffee shop, you're going to see a tip bucket up front. Mm-hmm. You know, if you drop the 50 cents in, if you're giving them a five, well, that's a 10% tip yeah. you know, more. It's a 12% tip because yeah. the coffee was 450. Um, but you know, I, I tip maybe more than most, um, because I understand you support the industry. Absolutely. I understand that, you know, that it may be a casual, you know, it may be, um, you know, a casual that doesn't get as many shifts. So just because a casual is on a higher rate because they're casual, well, they might only be working you know, 20 hours a week or 15 mm. hours a week. Mm. So you know, I, I look at it as if I had great service, I... That person deserves. Correct. And, and I agree. And I also like when they ask, that not in a rude way, but it's almost like if you don't ask for anything in life, you're not getting it. If you don't ask that girl out, she you're not going <laughs> out with her. If you don't ask for the raise, you're not getting it. If you, you need to ask for things. Nobody you, loves you more than you. So if you don't, as a... A server is a is a salesperson. Yes. They hand you the menu. They can just hand it to you and walk away, mm. or they can upsell that menu. Yes. Right? They are an integral part of that business. So if they're trained by the owners, by the managers of that restaurant to upsell that menu, well, they're going to guarantee that that business thrives and can make it through crises like this. Mm. Right? So training your staff, upskilling your staff, uh, both in food quality as well as, you know, um, wines and and the what they need to do their job the best they can but also sales techniques of how, how do you get a table to order how you want them to order there's an art to it uh there's certain new york 
uh, restaurant waiters who have been in the business so long and they're so good at it, they're on a quarter of a million dollars. Jeez. Because they know how to sell. They know how to do what you said and make people feel like they're family. As a business owner, could you use the waiters as give them sales targets? So if you were the restaurant restaurant tour, sorry, could you say, listen, because basically from what I understand, the restaurant business model is quite simple. You have this many heads and this is the average price per head. Basically. At the end of the year, you can figure that out. Yeah. So if you said to them, okay, guys, our average uh, price per person, uh, average spend per person is $70. We want to make it 100 You've got that section. You've got that section. You've got that section. Whoever has the highest spend per head gets a $200 bonus at the end of the night from the restaurant. Do they do that? So we used to do that at Pacific Restaurant Group. So we would challenge. That would be mad. I would actually we, want to go and get we, involved in we that. We would challenge the managers. And, and this was, you know, uh, some years ago. So mm-hmm. we sold out in 2013 and uh, we formed Pacific Restaurant Group in 2009. So you're talking about 11 years ago. And, and the landscape was different. Uh, there wasn't fair work um, then. There was work choices. But um, we operated on a pretty decent profit margin. And we did that because we challenged those teams, mainly the management teams, to drive their staff to upsell. Mm-hmm. And, and was there strict that, training in place for them? Absolutely. You know, how to menu engineer, how to drive people to the middle of the menu. So back then I had what was called the Moe test. Mm-hmm. So the Moe test is you sell Moe for $99, okay, which is 20 or 30 or $75 cheaper than your competition. Well, you do that because it enhances the experience for the diner. They can get a bottle of Moe in a restaurant for $99. Well, we could buy it for $35. So it was a $65, $64 margin, which is huge in dollar terms. Mm. Percentage, it's okay, but it's huge in dollar terms. So often they would buy two bottles. Now, there are not many bottles of wine that someone would typically order where you would make $130 in margin. And so we started doing that with a lot of our higher-end wines. So we were selling Grange much cheaper than our competition because – you know, Grange would typically sell you know, for, for several hundred dollars. We would sell it for a couple hundred dollars cheaper, which was way over what we paid for it. And people would come in and they would buy two bottles of Grange. Mm. And Especially after finishing the first bottle. A- absolutely. Yeah. And so you, you do that and it's, it's called contribution margin versus profit, right? So it's, you're not looking at what my cost is. You're, so what my cost of goods sold is, you're looking – it's or penny profit versus cost, right? So you're trying to make more dollars. Mm-hmm. You cannot spend percentages. Oh, I had a great liquor cost this month. That's fine. You you had a hundred dollars in sales. I don't care what your liquor yeah. cost was. Yeah. I want to know what your I want money line. in want, the bank. Bottom line. <laughs> yeah. So menu engineering is very important, and it's you can train. And so, what is a typical business model for a restaurant? How, what's their percentage on food? What's it, what's the markup on alcohol? Are you allowed to give away those trade secrets? Oh, absolutely. So we we do a yearly benchmarking report, uh, mm-hmm. which we send out to our members and also to the uh, our sponsors, uh, like the Fork, who will send it out to their their uh, database. And this year we got the largest um, response back. And so we're fairly certain that the numbers are quite quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lo- lot of profit to be made in the average restaurant. So I say the average. Uh, average caters is 2%, but that's big volume. The average uh, cafe or coffee shop is about 4.6%. Mm-hmm. And the average restaurant's about 45 Wow. So they are running slim. They are. However, that's a range. 
Yes. So we, I certainly have members that tell me they make 15%, and I have members that tell me that they were losing money even before the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So th that's an average, and it's weighted average, and you know it takes all factors into account. Um, however, you know if you're doing $10 million a year, 4.5% is not too bad. Yes, but it does keep the entire industry in a shaky position, especially when something like this happens. So in America, the average restaurant profit is between 10 and 30, and that's because of wage cost. Uh, also, rents are a bit cheaper in America. So you know, ultimately, restaurants have thrived in America, and there's a lot more restaurants per capita in America than there is in Australia because of the high cost of doing business. Now, someone also told me that the, the fringe benefit tax, when I think it was Keating, uh, brought that into play, Whenever, when was he? It was before I was born. Oh, no. So actually for the, the French benefits tax on long lunches just yes. came in recently. It was, uh, was think, that recent? Yeah, it was fairly recent. So Paul Keating did, the, did uh, I believe, work choices. Uh, okay. Paul Keating is, is in the workplace relations. Okay. Um, I think I was, Ju I was Julia Gillard, I believe, is the one that brought in French, she benef brought that in, did French she? benefits Ooh, tax. I'm going to have to so, have a word with so her. You, you used to, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, Cub Universe, but yep. um, it's a more recent thing. And so okay. it killed the long lunch. Because why, why would you want to disincentivize businesses to spend money in small business? Mm -hmm. Big business spending money in small business. Let's tax it because people are calling it a benefit. Yeah. Well, I wasn't benefiting when I was sitting at the table eating lunches every day and drinking wine every day till I, you know, till I was many kilos more than I should have been to close five deals. Yes. I wouldn't call that a benefit. It's a, it is a cost of doing business. Yes, and, and it's tiring too. Business happens at the restaurant. You don't do business with people that you don't like, right? Absolutely. And you like someone or you get to know someone at a restaurant. You end up liking them at a restaurant. You end up deciding on a business <laughs> deal at a restaurant. At Cub, we host almost 25 um, um, uh, dinners a week, right? Not at Cub, at different restaurants. Members, groups of members are, are going to dinners, right? Because we know as a club that that's what's going to stimulate business between them. They want to get a little loose. They want to, be, they they want want to, to eat to and dine and talk about things other yeah, than business. Other than work. That's right. And, and then find out they have common interests. And as soon as you find out you have common interests, then all of a sudden you find out, hey, you know what? What do you do? Oh, I do this. Oh, I need, I need you. I've hired and yeah. paid two Cub members because we get along outside of Cub. You have. Exactly, Absolutely. Exactly my point. It's the relationships made. Right? And restaurants, they need the income from businesses, they need a, even us as a team. Businesses as a team, sorry, they go to these restaurants and they do their team lunches. They do their quarterly meetings after. After they, that that has stopped now. Restaurants should businesses should be able to spend money at restaurants and not be taxed ridiculously on it. I don't know what is it forty eight percent they're taxed. Oh, on it's it a fringe benefits tax is ridiculous. We it, won't get into it because we're. Oh, I'm not an expert on it. Well, let's say this. Let's yeah. say that what we've learned in this crisis. Yes, is that the fringe benefits tax needs to go as it comes to restaurant meals in the day. It'll be one of the things that brings restaurants back, that saves them from the brink. I think fringe benefits tax needs to go altogether. And in fact, I'm going to announce right now that I'm making it my personal mission and the mission of Cub <laughs> to, to abolish it because we're going to need that gone. 
when, when we want to stimulate business growth again, after all these businesses suffer these huge blows after this terrible crisis, we're going to need to stimulate spending. We're going to need business models to be better. We're going to need a, a, a reformed tax system. And you, we're going to make that a priority on our, on our list. Uh, absolutely. It's one of ours. And finally, just to end, because I've taken so much of your time, um, uh, culture. So I, had, I grew up in Paris. I did all my high schooling and uni in Paris. I didn't do much at uni, got kicked out, but it was in Paris. And I, so I have a lot of friends come from overseas to – I went to the international school, so they're not French, but they're all from everywhere. And they come visit me all the time here in Australia. And they said, hey, you guys stay at home so often. You're at home after work. You're, you're, you're in a lot. And I thought about it and I was like, that's so true. When I lived in Paris, I ate, I ate out every night. It, without fail, even on my breaks at work or uni, I'd go sit at a cafe. I'll, back then I smoked. I'd have a cigarette, a coffee, a little croissant. It was mad. And in Australia, the, the culture is a bit different, I guess. And perhaps it's because we're less uh, less dense populated. Not, is, is it gentrified? Is it not as many cities? Or is, Did I use that word correct or did I sound like you, more? No, no, you did. It's, you're I less make gentrified. Myself dumb no, lot. no, you said it correctly. Cool. I, I would say it has to do with it is culture. And so Australia is a dining culture, absolutely. But it's a different dining culture. Um, you know, Australians tend to have bigger houses than the French, mm-hmm. bigger houses than New York. Um, you know, so think about in France, and I've been there multiple times, you know, even the hotel rooms are super tiny and the flats are super tiny. Super expensive. Too. And super expensive. Mm-hmm. And so you, know, you live in a very small space. I don't know many Parisians that would think about waking up in the morning and then going to the couch and sitting in front of it and watching Netflix. Mm. I don't know any Parisians that do that, right? So they're going downstairs to their local cafe and they're interacting with people. They walk a lot too. That's probably why they're all skinny. They eat a lot of chocolate and then they walk to their cafe. (laughs) So, So ultimately it's more about creating pockets of hospitality businesses. But again, it's very difficult to do business in Australia from a hospitality point of view, the profit margins are very low. So you don't get the density of as many that would, would do what you'd like it to do. I was, I was talking to somebody, you briefly mentioned it before I was talking to um, another incredible businessman the other day. And, and we were talking about business is very hard to do in Australia. There's a lot of regulation. The taxes aren't on your side. There's a lot of things not on your side. There's a small population. It's quite spread out. If you can make your business work in Australia, Australian entrepreneurs are the greatest entrepreneurs because if your business works well in Australia, if we can show them and give them that that connection to the rest of the world and and let them expand and let them grow throughout the world, they're running so efficiently in this country that overseas with a bigger market and better taxes and better system altogether, they'll, they'll be the strongest. Look at Canva. Perfect example. Exactly. It's proof of concept. So Australia, you can prove a, if you can prove a concept here, then you've proved it globally. Yeah, and that would be good for Australia because the money would be funneling back into our country, making our economy stronger, growing, our, giving our government more ability to help those in need, which it obviously needs because uh, look at what's happening now. And Wes, thank you so much for your time today. That was a, a brilliant conversation. I learned, I learned so much and I hope all the listeners – um, have learned too. Absolutely. Um, maybe would you like to, before we finish, maybe finish with one message to to 
perhaps hospitality business owners or or to all business owners? What's one key, the most important thing you could say? Oh, kindness is free. No, um, (laughs) nothing's free in life. Uh, That's true. When it comes to the coronavirus, just stick through it. You know, I know it's going to be tough. There's a lot of industries that are thriving. So from an entrepreneur's point of view, what can you change? What can you do? How can you actually take this, these lemons and turn them into lemonade. Um, if you're struggling as a business owner, if you're in a business, you're in an industry that's been closed or it's highly restricted, trade through, innovate, don't worry. We will all make it, make it out of this on the other side. Think through the problem, talk to people, ask everyone you know, what should I do? What do you think? Get great ideas and execute. Survive, then thrive. And the most important thing is, that uh, together, which your industry uh, association shows, we're stronger together uh, than we are apart. So as business owners, uh, whether it be in the hospitality or multiple industries, we should be working together right now to keep Australian businesses going and to keep the Australian economy alive, full of jobs and happy Australian citizens. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Wes. Let's finish it there. Thanks, Dan. And do that. <laughs> <laughs> we can do the air. We can do the air. Please bump.